Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined, as always, by former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and Republican consultant, analyst, and commentator Alicia Preston. We have to start once again with the story that has rightfully dominated the news in the last week. We're recording this on Memorial Day. We are going to air this on Tuesday, and I am unfortunately confident that this will still be the number one topic in America, as it should be the mass shooting in Texas that killed 19 school children, two adults. We did a major show on it on Beyond Politics with an expert talking about a dose of maybe what I think we all need, um, which is a sense that maybe this time something can get done that will meaningfully impact the gun violence epidemic in America. I commend that episode to all of our listeners because we did hear from an expert that there are a lot of things going on at the county, at the state, and at the city level that are making a meaningful impact on reducing gun violence, hard as it is to believe at a time like this. But over the weekend, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who has really been the most outspoken vocal leader in the U.S. Senate on uh, gun violence ever since the Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut, which he represents, he said uh, on Sunday that he's having more meaningful discussions with both Democratic and Republican colleagues in the Senate over the past week than he has had at any time in the past 10 years since Sandy Hook. So I want to put it to this group. Is there this time a realistic prospect, in addition to some of the action that we've seen on the more local level, is there a realistic prospect for anything happening at the federal level? Alicia, can I start with you? Sure. Uh, it depends what they're, what legislation they're looking at. I mean, you know, this isn't a matter of most Americans who support gun rights opposing any changes. It's a matter of what are the changes they want and what are they proposing? And, and it's behind closed doors. We don't know. I mean, most people actually believe in the general concept of universal background checks. Gun advocates believe in it. I, I've spoken to those here in New Hampshire who run some of the biggest two-way groups say, no, no, we support that. What we don't support is X, how this is written or, or other parts of it. And it makes perfect sense if you talk to them. And so, I mean, I can't say whether anything's going to happen because I don't know what they're looking at. I don't know what they're proposing. Um, you know, there's talks about red flag laws. Okay. Some states have good red flag laws. Others, they're written very poorly and, and they've failed in courts. Um, would a red flag law have stopped Texas? I don't know. So, yes, there's places where consensus can be met. But I don't know what they're looking at, and I can't therefore know if it's going to meet it there. I do want to circle back to that thought that there is very high support, including among Republicans, and you see it in polling for universal background checks, red flag laws, raising the purchase age to 21, which is a step that would have uh, prevented both the Buffalo and Texas shootings. But Paul, I was wondering if you could maybe take us inside some of these discussions, obviously, you have represented a district in Congress where support for gun rights is very high. And you have been in the room when these discussions have happened with other Democrats. There used to be a lot more Democrats, from so-called blue dog Democrats, 
from very conservative areas and you worked with a number of them. And I, as a staffer, have worked for a few members of Congress who come from rural, fairly conservative districts where support for gun rights is just, it's, it's just a thing. It's just a necessity. So do you recall from your time in Congress where unfortunately you had to deal with issues like this, with situations like this, what are those discussions like behind the scenes with, with Democrats and maybe even with Republicans, if you've had any? Well, first of all, the, um, when I served in Congress, it was a very different time. Um, we had not had Sandy Hook. We hadn't had the volume and, and, and accelerated volume of mass shootings um, in so many places that we've had in the past um, in the past time in the past decade, basically, since I served uh, in Congress. And New Hampshire is an interesting place. It has among the most permissive gun laws in the country. Um, their last um, mass shooting event was in 1982. Uh, the gun violence rate in New Hampshire is, however, um, higher, significantly higher than the, the incidence of gun violence in Massachusetts, uh, which has very strict gun control, although the murder rate in New Hampshire remains very low. Um, so, so I come from a state that has a libertarian ethic around guns. And when I was in Congress, I took a very different position than I do now, um, having had the, the benefit, not so much of hindsight, but of the reality of um, what, has, what has occurred. Um, I now favor um, uh, very strict gun safety laws um, nationally. And I think, um, my, and my position back then was very different. Um, and it was, uh, frankly, I uh, had a lot to do with, pol with politics. Uh, we had to keep the NRA out of my race uh, in, order to, in order to get elected in New Hampshire um, in 2006 and 2008. And we successfully did um, keep the NRA out by, by basically adopting a kind of, believe it or not, Bernie Sanders position of uh, let the state, you know, each state, each state should be responsible for choosing uh, what happens. And I respect um, the rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the discussions that are going on now are, are really very quiet discussions um, because the cultural divide in this country is is extreme, and the cultural divide in Congress is extreme. Republicans are afraid to speak out about any meaningful gun safety because uh, they don't want to anger their base and risk uh, getting primaried uh, over, uh, things they may say about gun, gun safety and, and any limitations on what is perceived to be a second amendment rights. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the Texas Tribune interviewed people at the NRA convention and 
most uh, they interviewed dozens of people who attributed the attack in Uvalde, Texas, to a breakdown in society, the removal of God from public schools, the decline of two parent households, leniency towards criminals, social media and an increase in mental illness, but nothing to do with the ability of an 18-year-old to purchase a weapon and large amounts of ammunition or the prevalence uh, of, of assault weapons whose sales have skyrocketed over the past decade. So those are challenging conversations. Chris Murphy, Murphy who was my colleague in Congress and now a senator from Connecticut, uh, his district had included in Sandy Hook, has been a leader on this. And he is, you know, when I hear him say publicly um, sort of softer things about the possibility of getting some things done, what it tells me is that behind closed doors, there are some serious conversations about getting something done, but whatever gets done, if something gets done, is going to be pretty minimal. Um, it's not going to be a ban on assault weapons, which, as people may recall, after the ban in 1994, uh, there was a sharp decline in, um, in attacks with assault weapons. Um, and we're seeing just the opposite now. So there may be something done. It may be around ba background checks, um, and it might even be about uh, an age limit, but it'll be tinkering around the edges. Uh, we do not have the political will and the consistent majority in this country represented in the halls of Congress to have meaningful uh, control of our gun problem, which is a national health crisis. I think the biggest thing that has to happen is the hyperbole has to be pulled back and people have to have a conversation. Like I can't tell you how many memes on social media said things like, if you support the NRA, you've got baby's blood on your hands and th those kinds of things. And it's not only true. I'm a member of the NRA. I don't have anyone's blood on my hands. Uh, and, and, but that level of hyperbole pushes people back and you can't have conversations and, and members of Congress are doing it too. And that's not going to get anyone on the same team. Look, there are legitimate conversations to have. The 21 argument, I'm a huge advocate of the Second Amendment. I'd be willing to entertain a discussion on having to be 21. Look, you already have to be 21 to buy a handgun. So why not for a long gun? Um, what's the argument? The argument against it is hunting. Well, I was hunting with guns when I was far younger than 21, but that didn't mean I bought anything. You know, my mom bought it and parents can do that. There is a discussion that can say, look, you have to be supervised um, when, you know, using a gun, participating with a gun, gaming with a gun under the age of 21. Now, one of the arguments against it, and I do want to raise this, is <clears throat> But you can be in the military using a firearm, you know, in the battle of war. Well, right. But again, even if you're 18 and in the military, you are in a supervised controlled setting, um, whether you're 18 or 35, you are supervised in a controlled setting in the military. So, you know, you can't drink. You, you can't even smoke a cigarette now if you're in the military under the age of 21. So I get the argument that they can use it professionally, but they can't do it recreationally if they're not in the military. I just think that there's an argument to say some people need to be supervised. So, you know, someone brought up to me the other day, think about it, these gun shootings, you know, the, these mass shootings by young people, 18, 19 years old, as we saw in Buffalo. Um, a lot of it is based on an extreme youthful angst that turns into a severe mental health problem. And this person said to me, but guess what? By the time you're 21, 
that's probably behind you. And that was a really perceptive thing that that high school angst that people are saying causing this, they're loners, they have no friends, they, there's this commonality to a lot of these high school shooters, that three years post out of that situation, that's not where you're directing your anger anymore. And therefore, that was an argument to make it 21. I don't know. What I do know is people should come to the table for discussions like we're having here instead of calling each other baby killers and and wanting you know to take away our truthful gun rights and if this is what is finally bringing people to have a civilized conversation in the halls of congress maybe that's one i can't say the word positive to come out of this but maybe that's one thing we can at least look to i want to be clear though about the impact because it's so easy to muddy the waters in a discussion like this. So I want to be very clear about the impact of various laws that are under discussion. First of all, the research is is very clear that the kinds of measures that have been enacted at the state level that, again, I discussed in in, in more detail uh, on Beyond Politics, and we also put that episode in the Great Ideas podcast. So I won't go through all of that in this show here, if people want to think about this, talk about it, listen to that show, I commend that to them. I'll just touch on the fact that, for example, the assault weapons ban, there was a lot of pushback from the NRA. Well, even Nick Kristoff wrote in the New York Times, well, you know, that was really focused on cosmetic measures on guns. You know, it, it was ineffective. It only banned some guns, but guns that were substantially the same weren't banned. So it didn't make any sense. Okay, well, if you tell me that your ship is sinking and you've got six holes in it and you plug five, you're like, well, we didn't plug the sixth hole. So what are we doing here? What's the point? No, actually, you've you've slowed down the sinking of your ship. And indeed, the assault weapons ban worked during the 10 year period before the ban compared to the period after the ban. The number of gun massacres fell by 37 percent. The number of people dying because of mass shootings fell by 43 percent. So. These things matter. Does it stop everything? No, of course not. But you do all the things that you can do. Large capacity magazines where you can where you can carry so many bullets at a time and fire so many bullets at a time. Bans on large capacity magazines are associated with 38% fewer fatalities, 77% fewer non-fatal injuries when a mass shooting occurs. Does it prevent mass shootings? No. But when people go with with deadly intent with a firearm, they kill and injure fewer people. That is a good thing. And then in Florida, after the Parkland shooting, the politics completely changed. And in Florida, with then Governor Rick Scott, now U.S. Senator Rick Scott, and a Republican legislature, because those folks were on the ballot in 2018 and they were feeling the political heat, They enacted a red flag law where you could file an extreme risk petition to take guns out of people's hands. And they have worked since that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in 2018. That law that that take guns out of people's hands law has been used 6000 times. And so can I prove that in all of those cases there would have been shootings? No. But are there probably dozens, hundreds, who knows how many people alive and unwounded today because of those petitions? Yes. So 
these laws work. We know that they work on a state level. And the reason that the Bernie Sanders position at the time no longer works is because we know that these guns are being purchased and being taken across state lines. When you look at, for example, another statistic you see on Fox News that muddies the waters as well, shootings in Chicago, Illinois has relatively strict gun laws. The vast majority of those guns are coming from Indiana, Ohio, Wisconsin. They're coming from places with very different gun purchase laws. So we know that these things work. And again, there are many other measures that aren't always associated with guns. There are measures that involve school safety and mental health and communities and even green spaces is a well-studied topic that urban green spaces make a difference. And so there are lots of things that, that can be done, but they have to also be done on the federal level to be truly effective. And I just think we should be crystal clear about that because the opportunity is very much there. And it's, it's, now is the time that I'd like to circle back to what you said about 15 minutes ago, Alicia, that among Republicans, support for, for example, red flag laws, universal background checks, is surprisingly high. And you yourself are a member of the NRA. Look, Michael Moore is a member of the NRA, okay? There are, you're also a member of the Republican Party. Just because you're in a party or you're in a group with insane people does not ipso facto make you insane. It just means you're in a club with some crazies. The problem is there is this reporting that Paul alluded to from the floor of the NRA convention. It's in Politico. It's in the New York Times. It's in the Texas Tribune. Google it, people. The, 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 that convention is dominated by the crazies. They're full of conspiracy th theories. They think that the shooting in Texas, the shooting in Buffalo were false flag operations. They're, they're QAnon people. And these are the people that are driving the agenda, not the majorities that actually want universal background checks. So, I, I mean, I'm not sure what that says about our politics that this relatively small faction exercises so much leverage over a major party in the US, one of the two major parties, that it prevents, because make no mistake, the reason we don't have these stronger gun laws today is because of the Republican Party. It's because of the decades long quest from Mitch McConnell and other people like that. And I mean, do we agree, panel, that? That in itself is driven by a small, vocal, and kind of crazy faction within that party. Listen, I think just as we discussed, um, I don't remember whether it was a week or two ago, about the, um, uh, the, the right using abortion, deciding that abortion was an issue to divide people, guns have, have been used in, in the same way. Um, and it's time to get it's time to get time to get rational about gun safety. Well, I oppose the assertion that Republicans are using are the ones who use things to divide people. Everybody uses things to divide people. We're an incredibly divided country. You know, the pro-lifers like myself, but the extremists will call a pro-choice person a baby killer. I don't think that's the case. I think we're arguing different points. Putting that aside, being a pro-life woman, I've been called every name in the book and by men, which I always find ironic. So I just like to point out, it's not Republicans dividing people on the issue of abortion. This country is highly divided over absolutely everything, including whether it's muffin or donut is better for breakfast. They'll fight about online. Um, I think, you know, 
bringing this whole thing to the table and having civilized discussions without that kind of rhetoric would behoove all of us as a nation. Alicia, I know you wanted to address the fact that Beto O'Rourke showed up at a press conference from Texas Governor Greg Abbott and um, used it as an opportunity to shout at, at the governor. And this was a very, uh, talk about divisive issues. This was very divisive. There, was, there were different perceptions in each party of what this meant, this incident meant. How did you see it? I saw it as one of the most disgusting displays of opportunity politics I have ever seen. This happened the day after 19 children and two adults are killed in a mass shooting at a school. The governor and other officials were providing an update and a press conference, uh, and they were there to provide information in the media. Beto O'Rourke, who was running against Governor Abbott, Abbott was on the podium on the stage because, of course, he is the governor, and that would always happen in a situation like this, a press conference like this. He stands up grandiosely, makes some comments that he's not doing anything, all for the cameras, all because he's running for office. And what blows my mind, the insensitivity of it, but what blows my mind is, look, we've all worked with or for or are or were politicians. I worked for sitting governors. Before anybody running for office does something like that, it is vetted, particularly in a state like Texas. you got a big team. And someone said to him, let's go up, let's go invade the press conference and, you know, we'll get on the cameras too. We'll get our attention and get in the story line because you're going to be the one that's standing up against Abbott and that was processed through many staffers I know this this is how it works and he did it and and I just can't imagine the day after the bodies are still in the morgue the autopsies are still being conducted of 10 year old little children and you say hey never let a you know whatever Rahm Emanuel statement was um and take advantage of it for the cameras because you're running for office I found it vile vile so I hear your, your sense of outrage. What's underlying that, I suppose, is the idea that some, for some reason and somehow that mass shootings shouldn't be political. That is horsepucky. Um, it's all political at this point. Um, the issue of guns is political. The issue around mass shootings and the murder of little children is political. And you could condemn Beto O'Rourke for bringing attention to the inaction and the crazy positions of Texas politicians like Abbott and Cruz. Um, you could say, well, it's not in, in not in good taste. But if not in if not around one of these horrific events making public how he feels and that something ought to be done, if not acting on that emotion, then when? Because we've had enough lip service. We've had enough lip service. We've had enough control by the NRA. We've had enough of the Republicans blocking any meaningful gun safety. You've got to own that. I don't care whether you're in the NRA or out of the NRA. It's outrageous. It's disgusting that the Republicans, your party, Alicia, are blocking meaningful reform on gun safety. We've got a national crisis on our hands. The Second Amendment was formed when there were muskets, single shot muskets that took three minutes to load. So 
I'm, I'm sick and tired of hearing excuses. I'm tired of hearing your outrage when politicians express their feelings. I'm disgusted with Republicans. I've had it up to here. They all ought to be voted out of office. I think the idea that I'm saying that Beto O'Rourke can't have an opinion or you can't have an opinion is silliness. That's another level of rhetoric and hyperbole that's defining the reason that nothing gets done in this country on this issue. Beto O'Rourke, there's a time and a place for everything. 24 hours after babies are killed is not. Hold on, let me finish. 24 hours after. You think some polite debate at this point is what's going to get anything done or bring? I think it's the only thing that's going to get anything done. You sitting here calling me and others a baby killer takes Republicans off the table. That's what happens. That's why nothing gets done. I didn't didn't call you a baby killer. I just said. It was disgusting that Beto Republicans O'Rourke. have stood in the way of meaningful gun safety. Anyone so I didn't call, I didn't call Beto you a baby O'Rourke. killer. It was 24 hours after the bodies are still in the morgue. He didn't do this out of some sincere concern or feeling or emotion. He did it as a political stunt. And Paul, you know it as well as I do. There was nothing sincere about that. It was political opportunism on the deathbed of 19 children. That's what that was. And I'm with the Uvalde mayor who screamed from the stage at that moment and called him a sick SOB. I think the problem, I mean, my perception of this is I, I can't believe this. I'm going to say that you're both right. Um, and I, the from the Democrats' point of view, I hope from most people's point of view, what gets a little infuriating is the suggestion that you hear time and again from Republicans after a mass shooting. Now is not the time to fill in the blank. Now is not the time to talk about. If you talk about new gun laws, you're playing politics. If you talk about why wasn't more done, you're playing politics. So that leads to an incredible amount of frustration. But Alicia, you're right. There's a message, there's a message, and there's a messenger. And Beto O'Rourke at that moment is not the proper messenger. If you want to channel your outrage, frustration, anger, and the urgency of getting something done, then you are not the person to carry that forward. If you want to work with aggrieved families, if you want to work with advocacy groups, and if they want to get up in the governor's face and say, no, now is the time while we're feeling a sense of urgency, what are you going to do to prevent the next one of these? That's different. But you're right, Alicia, as soon as the candidate running against the sitting governor stands up to do that, it only looks like grandstanding, and then we end up in a political rock fight. One other note on this, and then I, I think we should move on to, to other equally uh, uh, gnarly political topics. It's interesting that reporting has emerged over the weekend, over the last few days, about the gun manufacturer here. And it's more and more being shown that their advertising was targeting teenagers, Star Wars themed advertising, um, you know, a fantasy shooting game targeting at targeted advertising. And this is very much the same kind of theme that led to the record groundbreaking $73 million settlement against the gun manufacturer Remington recently in the civil suit from the Sandy Hook families. I think the thing to keep an eye on here, because we talked about this in the wake of that settlement, we had Cliff Schechter, a a longtime expert on the NRA and, and on gun advocacy, 
And he came on the show and he said, you know, this could be a really big landmark. This could be a really big deal going after these gun manufacturers in civil court for their irresponsibility. And we've talked on this show about the parents of, of the shooter in, I believe it was Michigan, who did not secure their firearm. Their son got a hold of it, led to a mass shooting. And now the parents are being sued for negligence. I think the negligence angle here, the responsibility of the gun manufacturer itself and the potential for major multi-million dollar liability is a factor to watch here. With that, I want to turn to another kind of vexing politics topic. We have to talk about the Trump of all this, to, to at least in some way. He not only attended the NRA convention, he then held a Wyoming polit political rally, ostensibly for the challenger to Liz Cheney, but not really. And the, it, it's interesting for political readers like me, for political obsessives like me, to read that coverage because Politico is a it's a publication that tries really, really hard to play it down the middle. And you know that they try hard to play it down the middle because partisans on each side are pretty convinced that they're with the other side. So it was really out of character for them to open their Sunday Politico playbook with a description of the Trump rally that in no uncertain terms called him out for picking out a, a, a political wedge issue for a disaffected minority group and going after them as his new political obsession. That was, in fact, what the playbook article was called. It was called Trump's newest obsession. And it described how after a meandering speech that had nothing to do with the candidate that he was there to support, he went in on, and I'm quoting here, no teacher should ever be allowed to teach transgender to our children without parental consent. Just as the MAGA faithful started to trickle out, can you imagine people started flocking back in? We will save our kids. We'll also keep men the hell out of women's sports. Is that okay? See, I'm politically correct. They can't get me. You have to be very careful. This is a hornet's nest. And then he congratulated himself on being the only one who talks about this issue. And Politico, Politico called him out for, in their words, a cynical strategy at work here, targeting marginalized groups for ridicule, which forces more responsible actors to stand up for them. As Democrats have learned, Trump's goal is to get them to spend their time outraged, defending the targets of his attacks, rather than talking about his own message. But at the same time, we obviously saw in primaries last week, Trump's candidates did not win. And there was a new finding that Trump's fundraising is down compared to fundraising in the rest of the Republican field. So, Alicia, let me turn to you. Where are we now in this week in Trump? Is this sort of a desperate cry for help, as Politico suggests, a, a kind of a stand-up comedian out riffing, trying to find new material, trying to find a new obsessive cause that will reignite him with a party that is leaving him behind? Or is this just same old, same old with Trump, and he ain't going anywhere. I think he's probably trying to revitalize his base, you know, and, and how do you do that? You target something that uh, his core type base can rally around. I think it's a poor strategy myself. Um, 
I also don't think he's running in 2024. I maintain that. Everyone thinks I'm insane. We're going to have, we're going to have such a good running bet on this. I mean, you may be the last lonely person in America who believes this. I hope you're right. Go on. Go I'm going to say, I don't think he's running. Um, you know, what's too bad is that these issues, which actually should be discussed. I mean, the issue of biological men in women's athletics is a legitimate discussion to have. But when you're Donald Trump and you throw it out there the way he throws it out there, that's not a discussion. That's, again, just trying to divide people. And so, again, a couple of these things absolutely have merit in discussion. But just driving a wedge between people isn't discussion. That was a point I was making on on gun control as well. We've got to stop driving wedges between each other with incendiary language and things and instead have legitimate conversations because that's where you're going to get solutions, uh, regardless of which side you come on. You know, Trump Trump's fan base is dwindling. People are tired. Um and they're ready to move on, not just from Trump, but from the Trump era, I think, when it comes to just that negativity. Paul? I hope Alicia is right. I hope it's time to move on from the Trump era. If only Trump believed it was time to move on from the Trump era, I'd be a lot happier cowboy. I'm really, I'm kind of tired of Donald Trump, believe it or not, even though he makes a great punching bag for the left. Um, uh, he scares me. Uh, his his MAGA people scare me. They're undermining America. I want him to go away. Just please go away. What I guess I don't understand is what's disqualifying in American politics anymore? Nothing. Like, I, you there know, is no such thing as disqualification anymore. You can rape, pillage, loot, and steal and still be a candidate for high office in All this right. country. All right, literally, and I don't I don't mean to make too much light of this. I truly don't because the underlying issues are extraordinarily serious, but let's let's try a little quiz here. Is this disqualifying? This is like one of these online things like 10 weird tricks to get rid of belly fat. All right, here we go. <laughs> is this disqualifying? The the political scuttlebutt in recent days has been that Elise Stefanik, the Buffalo area congresswoman, currently the third ranking member of the House on the Republican side, who two weeks ago was being excoriated for running ads, sounding themes of great replacement theory that were the same underlying drivers of the Buffalo mass shooting. She's now being openly discussed as a potential replacement VP pick for Donald Trump because Mike Pence is another piece of amazing reporting. Uh, apparently, Donald Trump was really happy to hear that uh, the January 6th insurrectionists were chanting, hang Mike Pence. He was really into that. Um, so, OK, do with that what you will. So Elise Stefanik, supporter of great replacement theory, clearly racist. Is that disqualifying? Yes. Not anymore. Yes, okay. it is disqualifying. <laughs> let's try, let's try another one here. You, you know mean, what? Should it be disqualifying? Or no, is no, no, it no, disqualifying? no, 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 Or is it for me? Is Wait, this, are we? No, no. The, the, what's the, the question here? Okay, the question. You're right. You're right. You're right. I just wrote a whole Newsweek article that starts off with the whole. I, I'm looking for an answer, but I haven't defined the question enough. Okay, there we go. Here's the question. Today in American politics, is this disqualifying? Not how you feel about it, oh. and not should it be. But is it? Is this no, the answer? Is no. Oh, then the answer is no. No, it's not. Okay. Okay. Let me give you another one. And I, you know, I'm, I rarely do this in these shows. I try to, I try to prepare uh, in advance. Um, I, I'm going to look up here the Herschel Walker statement 
over the uh, over the weekend about the shooting. Um, and, and this has been described as he doesn't speak in beautiful syntax. Now, I'm not trying to make fun of his intelligence. I'm not I, I'm not it, it's it's not a personal thing. The question is, this is someone who is the, the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate. OK, here we go. At a church event in March, Walker questioned evolution, asking if humans evolved from apes, then why are there still apes? Think about it. OK, so he doesn't believe in evolution because there are still apes. Disqualifying? Not anymore. Not today in American politics. He's supported by a lot of people. He's been endorsed by the great Orange Cheeto himself, who is no stranger to strange syntax. The fact that he can't string two thoughts together, not disqualifying. I don't know. I didn't hear that comment until the time, although I question as to where we are as humankind right now can actually be called evolved. Um so I don't think it's disqualifying. He doesn't speak well. I don't know much about him, to be perfectly frank. But Bernie Sanders sounds like a buffoon half the time, too. And he's smart and people love him. So whatever. All right. Let me throw <laughs> this one at you. Let me throw this one at you, Alicia. I want to see if I can move you off of this. Is this disqualifying? You ready? Okay. There it is. When asked about the mass shooting in Texas and the potential his for his general policy views on gun restrictions, this is just... You know, look, you've prepped a million candidates. Paul, I've prepped you and many, many other candidates. So you know that this has been discussed in advance. You ready? Here we go. He was asked this. This is what he said on Fox News, the, the friendliest audience available. Well, you know, it's always been an issue because, as I said earlier on, they want to score political points. Okay, not bad so far. People see that it's a person wielding that weapon. You know, Cain killed Abel. And that's the problem that we have. And I said... What we need to do is look into how we can stop those things. You talk about doing a disinformation. What about getting a department that can look at young men, that's looking at women, that's looking at their social media? What about doing that, looking into things like that, and we can stop that that way? Alicia, disqualifying? I, I understood it perfectly well. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, now that's the scary. <laughs> that's that's the scariest thing you've ever said on this show. Folks, this person, <laughs> this person might end up being a U.S. senator. There's like a very, very good chance. What this is the deliberative body of American government. OK, um, is is this person able to do that? Does he understand what the what this job is like? OK, all right. I, I guess I guess I'm mostly done. I have one more. I have one more for you in Oregon, an open QAnon supporter and serial failed candidate won the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. Now, look, it's a, it's a Democratic-leaning state, but it's not a far-gone conclusion that, that a Republican could win there. This person could be a U.S. Senator. Open QAnon supporter. Disqualifying? I actually think an open QAnon su uh, supporter will be disqualifying. I don't think one will get elected. Paul? I, I I go back and my listen, my my go-to is there is nothing disqualifying in American politics today. I can't think of anything that would prevent somebody from becoming uh, a so-called legitimate candidate, i.e. this guy just won a primary. It's not disqualifying. Whether he gets elected or not doesn't mean is not the same as disqualifying. Um, now, Okay, let's go to um, to Mr. Cawthorn. Okay, is that disqualifying? Well, apparently, even for Republicans, he went a bridge 
too far. See, the cocaine fueled orgies because he because the he cocaine fueled orgies, colleagues of something. That's right. He, he that is that is what's political dis, politically disqualifying. If you say bad things about your own people, no, that's not why he didn't get reelected. He didn't get reelected because he's a fruitcake. He's a lunatic. He's a whack job who gets arrested and brings guns. Not disqualifying militia. Not disqualifying. No, no, not disqualifying. It's disqualifying because he told on Republicans. Yes. I don't think the voting electorate when I go and I cast my ballot, you know, I was going to vote for this guy who keeps getting arrested for guns. No, and no, 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 but no. now and that he ratted out his fellow colleagues about coke fueled orgies, now I'm going to vote against him. No, 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 no. But it's not the electorate. Tom Tillis, the senior senator in his own state, turned against him and dropped millions of dollars in ads against him. That, I think, is driven by the, you know, well, you, you accuse us. Look, Paul Gosar. Go to a white supremacist rally. That's okay. Lauren Boebert, same deal. Marjorie Taylor Greene, look, uh, don't even get me started on that rap sheet. All of that is okay, but do not accuse us of cocaine and orgies, okay? Don't don't tell people what we're really doing. If you tell people what's really going on, we're going to turn against you. We we used to put together a, a what we would call a fake press conference. Fake people. This is fake. This is not real. Not real. Not real. If Paul had ever been caught in a scandal and he would give a mock speech, which is I deeply, deeply regret getting caught. I, 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 I truly wish I had never been caught. And now that I have been, I'd like to say that I'm sorry for being caught. Let's do one. Let's do one serious topic before we get out of here. Um, Alicia, you pointed out that uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who is extraordinarily old, but apparently still commenting on geopolitical events, uh, said a couple of days ago that Ukraine should trade land for a ceasefire. You had some strong thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I look, I always respected, you know, Mr. Kissinger. Obviously, he's a wonderful mind. Um, but th- th- it's just a terrible idea. I mean, I'm sorry, Mr. Kissinger, if we get invaded in the US, what part of the United States are we willing to give up to stop an invasion? It, it makes no sense to me. Conceptually, it makes no sense to me. Uh, Ukraine is a sovereign country being invaded by a, a brutal dictator who whose soldiers are not only taking their land, but raping and pillaging villages and the people. And the answer is not to cede, which is what Mr. Kissinger suggested, part of the country to their invaders in order to stop them invading. Number one, it won't work, obviously. But number two, conceptually, it, it's a terrible thought for independence and freedom. Well, I, um, I am 98 years old at this point. Is he really? Is he 90, 98? 98 years old. It doesn't matter to me what exactly you think of me because I've seen wars come and wars go, and why not? Let's stop this. I think we just found out what would happen if Vladimir Putin and Bernie Sanders had a love child, and that would become <laughs> His name is Henry, Henry, Kissinger. Henry Kissinger. Paul, do, you know, you originally ran for Congress in no small part because of your feelings about the Iraq war, and I, mm. I'm not making light of this at all, but it was a very interesting slip of the tongue from George W. Bush about a week ago where I was just thinking of the words that Alicia just used to describe Vladimir Putin. George W. Bush was trying to use those exact same words to describe a dictator unilaterally launching assault in a, in a sovereign country. And he named that country as Iraq. Did Mm -hmm. that, did that spring anything for you? You know, um, (laughs) I, 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 I had a half mocking thought at the time. Well, maybe he, maybe he finally realizes how wrong he was, but, 
that's not true. It was simply a slip of the tongue. He just, you know, he's he's getting on and he had a slip, a slip of the tongue. Well, aren't we all? We are all getting on. And on that note, time is passing faster than we can possibly hold on to it. We are reaching the end of this show. We want to wish the very best of luck to the Boston Celtics who are in the NBA finals. We'll all be rooting for them. That's a nice, uplifting note in what's otherwise a very somber week. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt. We'll see you next time. 